Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Or button and we'll just, we'll just get going here. So, Can uh, I just ask you a question just absolutely. before we start? Okay. You, have a, you have a kid with autism, is that right? I do, yeah, my 13-year-old boy. Right. Sure. Was at the time that he was born, the first couple of years, because I'm doing a talk on this in a couple of weeks' time, sure. uh, what was your wife's diet? You know, my, my, my wife at the time, I'm no longer married to her, but she was, she's okay. an anesthesiologist. She's a physician. She, she ate a, I mean, I think she tried to get enough fish in her diet, you know, for DHA back then. You know, again, this is 13 years ago. Um, right. She was, uh, you know, certainly not eating a high-fat diet. She was probably eating a what she would consider a, a relatively lower fat, uh, you know, diet. I don't think she ate a particularly unhealthy diet. It wasn't junk food for sure. I mean, it was probably fruits and vegetables and some lean meat and some fish and, uh, and that sort of stuff. I mean, she didn't have, she didn't have uh, maternal uh, uh, gestational diabetes or anything like that. Uh, and I know this is an interesting topic because I certainly, you know, kind of ponders and I do think that probably autism has at least in part, some sort of dietary cause, probably during the maternal nutrition period. I think there's some evidence. You're probably aware of the relationship with uh, gestational diabetes and diabetic moms and autism. I think it, it, I think it increases the rate by something like 400%. So, right, but I'm not sure it's, it's specifically the diabetes. I, you know, so I, do you have a second or you want to talk about this some other time? Or? No, no, let's talk about it now. We're recording uh, this. I think this is good information. Okay, because I, I actually did a podcast with Doug uh, Reynolds a while ago on autism. I'm, I'm a pediatric surgeon. Sure. Uh, yeah, I saw that. So, uh, and, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, the, the human brain is that, as you know, 65% of it is fat. Um, 20% of all the cholesterol in the human body is in the, in the brain, even though the brain's weight is only about 2%. And human beings are the only mammals whose brains continue to develop structurally postpartum. Post I, I got one of those as well. Um, after, after birth uh, for about three to four years. And if you look at autism at the spectrum disorders, they're primarily a uh, uh, a deficiency or a structural abnormality of the white matter of the brain, which is primarily fat, saturated fat. So if the maternal diet, both in utero and more importantly, if the baby is fed a very low saturated fat diet postpartum for the first three to four years, which is the conventional diet we give these babies, particularly if they're not breastfed for very long, they're not able to, they don't have the substrates to develop the normal structure of the white matter of the brain uh, that continues to develop for the first three to four years. And um, it is our belief and, and, and uh, supposition that a large part of the rapid increase in the autumn spectrum disorders is a deficiency of saturated fat in the early uh, child, early baby diet. Um, more so certainly than vaccines, but that is also the link to the di diabetic babies. And we'll talk about this as we go through this podcast is that Really, it's, it's based on whether there's a capacity to produce a lot of insulin or little insulin, um, whether you become obese first or diabetic first. And yeah, in those moms, 
in those moms that have become diabetic first, um, their insulin levels are so high that it blocks five or six of the different hormones that are, that are related to structural, uh, uh, the, the cholesterol-based hormones that are related to the structural development of the brain. So that's kind of the combination, the link. But I was, just, I was just interested to know, you know, given what you're doing now, whether that was the case 13 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, again, I, I know what her diet has generally been over the time. And, you know, it certainly wasn't a, like I said, a, what most people consider non-healthy diet. But I would say probably like most women, probably, she probably skimped out on fat if I had to guess. You know, I don't, you know, again, I, I, you'd have to ask her to remember exactly what she ate. Right. But, you know, it's interesting if you look at, you know, there's been some, some, some animal studies looking at, you know, weaning patterns predicting the diet. And as you pointed, rightly pointed out, the human brain develops tremendously more so than any animal after, after weaning, you know, as well. Uh, and we see that uh, if we look at, you know, what human brain size is relative to weight, relative to weaning time, it, it predicts a diet that would be, you know, basically a meat fat rich diet to, to, to support that brain growth that you talked about. And again, that would also you know, and we can talk about this limit, some of the insulin exposure we'd see with that, that style of diet. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I really do believe that there's probably a dietary, a significant dietary. Now, why some kids get, some kids have it and some don't, because as you know, the, the, the junky diet that we eat is ubiquitous. And so we're not seeing 70% of the population, you know, having kids with autism at this point, you know, but we are seeing a, a greater prevalence. And so we wonder, like anything, it's probably a, a multiple, you know, hit type of thing. And, and, you know, probably the diet is one of the bigger components. And then there's other things that probably, you know, maybe there's a genetic predisposition, some of these other things that are out there. So it's very interesting. But yeah, I think diet is, is a huge role in this, in this, in this disease process. Yeah. And, you know, the, the part of the genetics part is that it's just, it's like obesity. It's too rapidly developing for it to truly be a genetic deficiency or a genetic abnormality. Um, you know, genetic abnormalities are, are consistent over time and do increase, but not at this kind of synergistic rate. Same thing as obesity. Obesity is definitely not a genetic disorder, at least primarily. It's based upon how we structured the human, as human beings, but that's not a just genetic disorder. It is part of our genetic makeup. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine if we, if we were to go back 50, 100,000 years ago, we would find, you know, morbidly obese adults and children like we do today i mean that that just hasn't been compatible with 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 human existence and in, in in my speculation i think that's pretty safe to say that you know i've got a picture you know i kind of put a picture kind of for the guest here and i know you do it i know you deal with obesity and you've done some childhood stuff and so we do see this tremendous rise in childhood obesity right now and we used to talk about you know these people back then only lived 30 years and therefore they weren't old enough to get these diseases of modern you know modern times or or uh, but, but, but our kids are getting these diseases at, you know, I mean, there's type two diabetics that are two and three years old now. And it's just fascinatingly, I mean, it's horrifying, but it's fascinating that we see that. Yeah. So there's something wildly amok, run amok in, in, in our, in our environment. And I know you like to talk about that. So yeah. why don't you, uh, Hey, can you tell folks just a quick, quick summary on, you know, backgrounds for people that aren't familiar with, with your work and who you are, and then we can get into whatever you want to talk about. Sure. So I, I'm basically a surgeon. I'm a, uh, first an adult general surgeon, but primarily specialized in children. So I am a pediatric surgeon. And I became particularly interested in obesity in children in adolescence because we really had no realm for helping them. And I didn't really know, this is now in the late 1990s. I had no idea how to really help these folks. But what I did know, one thing, is that we had no clue at the time of what we were doing. So by kind of trial and error and by observation, we 
figured out a few things. And the first thing that I figured out is that it is not related to food. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll make a very strong statement here. It's impossible to get fat from eating food. It is not humanly possible. Either God and nature is conspiring to kill us or the other way, or, or that's not happening. And it is exclusively carbohydrates that cause, cause obesity. Uh, so that was the first thing that we figured out very easily. I and mean, we looked at these children, we looked at what they were eating. Um, first of all, the fastest growing demographic, as you said a little bit ago in, in this country of obesity is in the two to five-year-olds. It's the most rapidly growing demographic of obesity in this country right now. So we had a, a population that was very easy to study and we saw what they were doing. And it became very evident to me that it wasn't food, it wasn't overeating, it wasn't too many calories, it was carbohydrates. And then we looked at the, at the range of kids, and I was interacting with kids all the time, and all of the kids that were over, overweight or obese, especially into the adolescents, were kids that did not have a very effective emotion management system. They had a deficiency in effective emotion management skills and tools. They may have come from an authoritarian family where those skills were eroded or never, uh, or, or never backed up or just never allowed to develop in a permissive family, but vulnerability to addictive behavior was the prerequisite for obesity. And we're not talking about kids that were a couple of pounds overweight. We're talking about these morbidly obese uh, kids. And we extrapolated that across to adults, and we found exactly the same pattern with adults. So my surgical practice slowly evolved to primarily taking care of obese children and obese adults. And while I am a surgeon, I do do obesity surgery. It's, a, it's kind of a last-ditch effort for me. The primary work is working with our patients to... Uh, from, an, from a carbohydrate addiction perspective, a cognitive behavioral addiction perspective, rather than just a diet. Um, and uh, so we developed about 19 years ago now, a what we call CMOD, which is the carbohydrate insulin mechanism of obesity and diabetes. And we've looked at it from an addiction perspective rather than a dietary perspective. And it, you know, we, we looked at athletes, we looked at a variety of different genres of people who weren't necessarily addicted but we're maybe using carbohydrates for a theoretical advantage. And uh, I coined a term, which I'm not sure you've heard of, or called PRDs. You know what a PRD is? You know what a PED is? Yeah, performance yeah. enhancing drug, yeah, sure. Right, so it's a PRD, which is far more important and less ever talked about. PRDs are what we call performance reducing drugs. And the quintessentially used performance-reducing drug over the last three to four decades by athletes is carbohydrates. It's a very powerful drug. It's a very neuroactive drug, and it ridiculously reduces the performance and the training ability and the recovery of endurance athletes in particular. So while we can look at Lance Armstrong and PEDs all day long, we've more importantly got to look at PRDs. You know, there are just two... Uh, um, guys that died in Wisconsin this past week, I think, um, running a triathlon. Uh, two guys dropped dead during the race. And everyone said, oh, it's a coincidence what's happened. That is, to my mind, a direct consequence of carbohydrate loading. Um, me, and the disease come from that. Let me just, because, I mean, that's a very, very controversial statement you're making there. And, and I, want to, I want to really dig into this. And when you talk about performance reduction. I mean, there, there are people out there that will show, they'll point to all of these studies that have been done on athletes, you know, with, with carbohydrates, without carbohydrates, you know, the, the carbohydrate loading hypothesis goes back to the 1960s with the Scandinavian researchers. Um, and so there are people that are out there that will swear that carbohydrates help their performance on the day of performance. Now, when you talk about performance reduction, and I talk about this too, and I think, you know, when we look at long-term training adaptations, when we look at oxidative stress, when we look at, 
um, you know, potential for tissue damage, glycation, and all those types of things. Tell me what you mean by performance reduction. I, I, want, to, I, want, you to, I want you to better define that term. So I know right, absolutely. Uh, first of all, just to give you a bit of background, um, uh, I was in Professor Tim Noakes' first physiology class when he was a young man. And I've known Tim for a long, long time and have been privy to a lot of the early work he did. And he's obviously one of the forefathers of carb loading and now of the, of the ketogenic movement or the banting or the low-carb high-fat movement. So a, a couple of things. First of all, um, carbohydrates um, are a very short-duration fuel source. So you have to keep replenishing them during a race. And, and we're talking more endurance-type races. So the, the human body, as you know, cannot store a significant amount of carbohydrates. That's the first thing. And, and really, when we're talking about carbohydrates, we're not just talking carbohydrates. We're also talking insulin. And we've got to understand what insulin does in the human body. So the first thing is during a race, you've got to keep replenishing your carbohydrates. And if you've trained that way, by definition, by the time you come to do a race, you are insulin resistant. And what insulin resistance does is one of the first things it does is it blocks the ability to use fat effectively. So you're not able to switch on and switch off different fuel sources. If you're a fat adapted athlete, and um, you are, your body is very attuned to using uh, uh, fat as a fuel source, non-race time, and you're in, you are insulin sensitive, then there could certainly be an advantage to a burst activity by taking a short, block, a short or, or a small amount of carbohydrate pre-race or, or during the race. But generally what happens during, during uh, a race and during training, when your insulin levels are elevated all the time, your liver becomes very, very ineffective at responding to stimuli that require a, a sudden burst of energy. I'll give you an example. Right now, if you look at my arm over here, I'm wearing, see my arm somewhere here. I'm wearing a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. When I, um, and I'm insulin sensitive. When I'm, and I'm not an athlete, when I put my shoes on to begin to go for a run, my blood sugar will rise somewhere between 30 and 40 milligrams per deciliter. Just the catecholamine release of going for a run. When I'm insulin insensitive or insulin resistant, that doesn't happen. I don't get those bursts. So you're, the, the human body's ability to respond on an energetic basis uh, changes for the worst uh, when you are insulin resistant. And that comes from chronic excessive carbohydrate consumption. Not only that, because you're unable to ebb and flow back and forth from the fat cells. So uh, what an athlete will do is carb load when they're running and they, they, uh, you take a tremendous amount of carbohydrates while you're training. But, and, and the excess carbohydrates, because you don't know exactly how many you're taking, but you want to take excess, all gets converted to fat. But because that insulin level is high all the time, even when you're not eating, eating even at rest, you're not able to mobilize that fat. So the first thing that happens is you accumulate excess weight, which is bizarre. And what do athletes do? They train harder and try to lose it. And they eat more carbohydrates and actually end up gaining more weight. It's the classic Bruce Fordyce story, if you know who Bruce Fordyce is. Um, but what these folks do is they accumulate fat, they become increasingly insulin resistant, and then they actually start developing paradoxical um, hyperglycemia where the liver is producing sugar, despite the fact that you are eating sugar at the same time. And that accelerates or exacerbates the insulin and you become diabetic. And it's that diabetogenic effect that damages your blood cells, that chronically, not your blood cells, your blood vessels. And that is where these guys are forming blood clots in their blood vessels. And if they get a little bit dry, they get a little bit dehydrated, that injury to the vascular endothelium, this is my PhD, that injury to the vascular endothelium causes tiny blood clots. 
And if that blood clot is big enough and breaks off during the race or at rest, that's called a heart attack and a stroke. So there are things that are killing athletes and there are things that are reducing their ability to uh, function properly. And that is, that is mediated through the insulin mechanism. The second indirect thing is that the first, that cholesterol is a very, very important precursor to all the hormones that athletes need. Uh, human growth hormone, adrenaline, cortisol, um, vitamin D, all of those hormones start out with a cholesterol precursor. And elevated levels of insulin block the very first conversion of that. So when these athletes are trying to strengthen, they're trying to build up, they need HGH, uh, not, not injectable, but from their own bodies, they need that adrenaline, they need that cortisol, they need that vitamin D, they're not able to produce it in the normal ways. So they're running at a low testosterone, at a testosterone deficiency. That's another one. The females, they're not able to produce estrogen. That's the PCOS, the amenorrhea that a lot of these athletes get. Those are the issues that are related directly and indirectly to carbohydrates as a PRD. Yeah, if I can jump in real quick here, I think what you said is really interesting. I, you know, when I'm working with some of my own coaching clients and when I'm just looking at my own training for endurance events, uh, I always uh, tell folks and tell myself to treat carbohydrates more like you would caffeine. Um, when I think of caffeine, like if I have a cup of coffee before a run, you know, I might get a little, a little burst of energy. Or if I take in a little caffeine during a race, I might get a little burst of energy. But if I decided to take 16 cups of coffee, you know, that, that would end badly for me. So there's like this, this, this uh, end game with that, or there's a, a finite amount that you can really tolerate over the long term. And I think when you, when you put yourself in a position like you described to be very sensitive, then you can just reduce that amount, just like you would with caffeine. Like if I drank six cups of coffee every day, if uh, I reduced that to one cup, I probably wouldn't even notice I drank that cup. But if I drink one cup of coffee three times a week, every time I drink that cup of coffee, it's going to be like a real big like jolt of energy. And what I've noticed with the folks I've worked with in myself is like I can get a much bigger punch from the carbohydrates I do take at a much lower quantity when I'm putting myself in a position like you described. Is that kind of the same line of thinking that you were describing? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the... If you're insulin sensitive, and that's really what it comes down to, it's not just the carbohydrates, but for most athletes, most athletes that don't understand the medical mechanism, if you're insulin sensitive, you have a very acute reaction to carbohydrates that, can be ben that are beneficial, just like you described. But when you're, when you're chronically eating these carbohydrates, your liver, your pancreas says, dude, I'm seeing sugar all the time. I'm not going to react to it. I'm not going to have that hair trigger sensitivity to a little burst of sugar. And you become sluggish, you become resistant to the effects. Now you need a much, much bigger load to have even a small effect. And if you're not able to produce enough insulin, if your pancreas can't produce in enough insulin to overcome that sluggish effect, you just don't see the effect of the, of the drug anymore. Exactly the same thing with the caffeine. And you need monster doses to even see a trivial, a trivial effect. And so folks that are, are training and carb loading while they're training, uh, they're overdoing the carbohydrates, they lose their insulin sensitivity, and not only from a direct energy response perspective, but also from a hormonal recovery and uh, injury prevention perspective, there's, uh, uh, there's a sluggishness that reduces your elite performance. The other part also that, that sugar changes up completely is fluid balance. 
and I'm sure you've probably read the book Waterlogged by, uh, by Tim, uh, but, but carbohydrates are highly hydrophilic. They love water. So when you're training, when, you, when you're running on carbohydrates, you need a massive amount of water. And as soon as that carbohydrate is used up, now you're left with all this free water in your system that has to go somewhere. Goes into the tissues, goes into the muscles, goes into the joints, and is part of the whole inflammatory process. So you tend to swell up, you tend to dry out much more easily. When you're burning fat as a fuel source, you don't, fat doesn't like water, it's hydrophobic. So you don't need massive amounts of water, either to drink during a rest or uh, um, to get out of your tissues. So the tissue swelling, the inflammation, and that's also another piece of it, specifically when it comes to athletes, more so than any other uh, um, group of people that eat carbohydrates. So there's multiple levels by which this functions. Just think about your brain. A tiny, because your brain's in a tight box, a tiny amount of swelling of, of your brain radically affects your decision-making, your reaction, your ball speed, your sprint speed. It radically affects the hair trigger that some of these prime athletes need, not just the runners, but guys that are playing ball sports, that type of thing. And it's almost like a concussion. It's like a tiny micro concussion when your brain swells up with that excess fluid that's being used up, that's left over after you've used up the carbohydrates. So there are so many different areas where carbohydrates affect and reduce your ability to perform effectively. And, you know, for myself who, uh, um, is really not the best of athletes. I don't call myself an athlete at all. It doesn't make that huge of a difference to my performance. But for someone like yourself, for, some, for an elite athlete, all sport or not, it makes a massive difference when they're at that elite level. Yeah, no, that, that is, I, I would agree with, with a lot of what you, what you said there. Um, I just, one thing I, is you make sure your, your mic is come cutting out a little bit on us. So I just want to make sure that, that, I don't know if it's not, not plugged in all the way or something like that. Um, yeah, I'll make sure that that's good. Yeah, that sounds better. Yeah, that's perfect. So yeah, I'm crashing a little bit here. A little bit, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. We can still hear. We can still hear the majority of what you said. You know, one of the things that uh, you know I've seen is you know there you, you talk about this anticipatory anticipatory response to exercise. You know, I've seen that you know myself when I was checking my blood sugar, I would see like as I got ready to perform exercise before I ever did anything. You know, your blood sugar would go up in order to provide what you need. Cause I, I would typically do very highly glycolytic type type of training. And so in, in an anticipatory response, I could do that. What are, you, what are your thoughts regarding, um, let's just talk about gluconeogenesis. Cause I know you've got a lot of research. You've done a, a lot of stuff around the liver. Uh, I know that's one of your, you, I guess one of the organs you understand very well. Talk to us a little bit about right. gluconeogenesis protein and how that has a role in uh, some of this, some of the stuff we've been talking about. Well, it's interesting that gluconeogenesis, gluconeogenesis can either be highly pathologic or highly useful in an athlete, depending on whether they're fat adapted or not. Um, if you are a carbohydrate loading um, athlete, the paradox is that because you are insulin resistant, glucagon continues to force the liver to produce sugar, even when your blood sugar is super high. And there's no real advantage of that. It's called paradoxical, paradoxical uh, gluconeogenesis. Uh, where glucagon should be shut off by insulin, it is not, because it's, it's a counteractive hormone, it is not functioning properly. And your gluconeogenesis is turned on when you don't want it to be turned on. Does that, does that make sense to you? So that's part of the PRD side. On the flip side of that, when you are um, insulin sensitive, when you are in a, a ketogenic athlete, 
then what, what people don't understand is you still burn a huge amount of sugar even when you are burning fat as your primary fuel source, but, but you burn it like nitrous in a racing car. Uh, you know, if you just had nitrous in your gas tank, um, your engine doesn't run that well. But if you use it for burst activity or for priming activity, both mentally and physically, and a lot of athletics is, is mental. I know Zach is, is uh, as an endurance athlete, that's really a large part of that physical. But when you start getting fatigued, you need that little bit of mental clarity to keep going, to keep going at a certain pace. But certainly the burst athletes, the ball sport athletes, need that sudden burst of sugar to as the nitrous to their bodies. And a prime gluconeogenic response um, happens to those athletes not primed by insulin, but if they are insulin sensitive, then cortisol, adrenaline, those are the hormones that, that create that sudden burst of gluconeogenic uh, release. Remember the liver always has some sugar in it. It's always gonna have some glycogen and some readily available glu uh, 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 glucose within it. And it's making that all the time, either from protein or from uh, the glycerol backbone of fatty acids, but it's always primed to release that nitrous. And if you are a fat adapted athlete, that is a huge benefit when you're just getting ready to play. And those little nerves before you start a game, that's, that's that response. That's that catecholamine adrenaline response. And part of that response is a burst of sugar into your bloodstream. And I can measure that on my CGM, on my continuous glucose monitor, I measure that. And the rates go up and down very, very quickly because it's rapidly cleared by insulin, rapidly used. But the benefits are tremendous, and that's gluconeogenesis. Very, very valuable for, for, for fat-adapted athletes. I think, you know, we, we talked about this quite a while ago with a guy, with a fellow by the name of Alessandro Ferretti. Uh, he's worked with a lot of elite Olympic athletes. Uh, talking about the fact that a lot of these athletes relatively run relatively high blood sugars, despite being what we would assume would be very insulin sensitive by having very, very, you know, high levels of lean body mass, no real significant fat on them. They're engaged in highly uh, glycolytic sprint intensive sports. And I, I think there's uh, a little bit of a difference between athletic physiology with regard to glucose metabolism and diabetic pathophysiology, which most of us are familiar with because that's what's so predominant. But I, I do see you know, some of these studies out there with, with CGMs that they're putting on athletes now, we're getting some very surprising glucose data, which I think a lot of people are, you know, are, are kind of wondering what to do with that. Do you, do you know any, have any more insight into that? Yeah, first of all, um, we had no, until we had CGMs, we had no clue how the body responded minute to minute to different uh, signals and different stresses. So the first thing is this, that the majority of American, I would say the majority of athletes in the world um, train, run, play their sport in a, diabeto, in a diabetogenic um, hormonal milieu. In other words, they are insulin resistant and they're playing and doing their sport um, in the framework of a diabetogenic. They're not diabetic, but it's what we call that, that uh, insulin resistant, high sugar intolerant uh, milieu. If you're a fat adapted athlete, and I'm insulin sensitive, I've, I've, I'm on a ketogenic diet, I'm insulin sensitive and have been so for longer than three months. It takes about 90 days, by the way, to go to, to become fat adapted, to begin to become fat adapted. So any studies under 90 days in athletes, I tend to ignore. Um, nevertheless, uh, I'll give you an, a prime example. These are just anecdotes from myself. My blood sugar typically runs in the high 60s, low 70s at rest. Um, 
yesterday I went for that run. I put my uh, shoes on. While I was putting my shoes on, my blood sugar went from 64 to 94. Okay. I hadn't started running yet. I, and I, this is on a 23-hour fast. So I hadn't eaten since the night before. This is about 23 hours into a fast. And during my – it's not a run. It's a jog. Okay. Um, just a little anecdote. Zach, Zach does seven, seven minutes and one second per mile of 100 miles. I do seven miles in 100 minutes. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a whole different story. But, but and I'll, I'll, see, I'll come back to those numbers in a second. But the, the point is this, that while I'm not a trained athlete, I am uh, in ketosis. My peak blood sugar was, was 122 during that run. So I went from 64 to 122 during the run within 10 minutes of stopping. And I'm not, again, I'm not fit. I'm not, my muscles are certainly not primed. I came back down into the 70s. So that is exactly the responsiveness you want from your body. And that does give you a performance advantage, whether you are a trained athlete or not. I'd love to be able to do, uh, put a CGM on you, Zach, and see exactly what those numbers are with you as you start to get ready for the run, as you, as you train, and whether you're doing uh, you know, high-energy sprint training or whether you're doing somewhat slower uh, endurance training. But, but that gives you such incredibly powerful data. And um, my, my liver and my blood sugars are responding to what I need as opposed to not being able to respond to what I need. So we're getting so much healthy data from CGM. What would you predict the response would be in Zach, you know, with a relatively relaxed, you know, low VO2 max run versus a high intensity sprint session? What, what would you predict that CGM would show? Well, let me ask you a question, Zach. What part of your training do you hate the most? What part do I hate the most? Yeah. Um, probably, it, it kind of depends, but <laughs> the one I'm doing the most of at the time usually. But <laughs> um, if I had to pick one, I'd probably say some of the shorter interval stuff, like the VO2 max workouts. Okay. And one other question, do you swim? And what was that? Do you swim? Uh, no. Not, not okay. regularly anyway. Okay. So you are really a core and lower body athlete. You really aren't a, uh, an upper body athlete. Correct. So my prediction is this. Number one, when you know you've got to do a high VO2 max, a, a sprint type thing that you really don't like that much, my prediction is that your blood sugar before you even get on the track. Um, while you're thinking about it, while you're mentally preparing yourself for it, is going to spike significantly. I don't know exactly what it is. Versus if you're going to go for a 20-mile slow run, um, mm -hmm. where you probably won't even see a spike because the neuroactive part of your brain is not kicking in. You're not apprehensive. You're not needing to psych yourself up to go for a 20-mile run, which for, for you would be the equivalent of a walk with my dog uh, for me. Um, the other part also is that because your shoulder girdle is not used as much as your lower body, even though you're a prime athlete, I bet you if you got in the pool and had to do some swim sprints, that's where you're going to see this most significant spike in your blood sugar, both in terms of um, the preemptive part, the thinking about it. And when you're in the pool, you're going to see a massive spike because your shoulder girdle muscles have different demands because they're not as trained as your legs. Your legs are so well adapted that their need is minimal relative to someone that's not well adapted. And I'm speaking from personal experience with exactly that, with the swimming, but I'd love to be able to see you wear a Dexcom 6 or something like that and, and do those two things. But that's what I would predict you're going to see a very high rise 
both before and during uh, your training. I, I think that on a long, slower run, you're going to see very, very little change in your blood sugars. You're going to see an elevation, but certainly not a spike. Yeah, no, I can tell you that, you know, I've checked, um, I've checked blood glucose post-exercise before, and there's definitely a spike, um, even in the fasted states. So like, um, and I, I, I don't have any concrete data, I guess, to look back on to see what sort of workouts I've done. I've just tested it afterwards out of curiosity a, a few times to kind of take a look at that. And it, it's, uh, it is really interesting. You know, and actually the first time I ever gave it any thought was after the faster study that Volick did in 2014, right. where they, they noted that exact same thing where it was kind of interesting that there was, uh, the blood sugars were, I think on average above a hundred, uh, milligrams per deciliter, um, post, post a session or training session. So that was, I think one of the interesting things that we found, but it, it matches what you said. Um, so look, I don't know if you can see the slide, the picture there. You see on my arm, I just tried, my, my picture's really skewed. But on my upper, upper right arm, I've got my CGM. Uh-huh. And it's giving, me a, it's giving me a blood sugar reading, a real-time blood sugar reading every five minutes. And it tracks directly on my phone. So the, that's, that, to my mind, is um, what I'd be very interested to see you do. It doesn't interfere with your training at all. It mm-hmm. stays only for 10 days, and you get real-time feeding, uh, feedback. Yeah, I'd have to. Ch- I'd like to check it out and give it a go. It'd be kind of cool to see. Just if nothing else, to see what's happening throughout the course of the day from from an everyday situation. But um, let me ask you this: uh, with uh, if you were working with an athlete or or even just a you know a person looking to stay healthy, and you put a continuous glucose monitor on them, what would you be looking for, or what would be like a red flag where they need to adjust their diet from a health standpoint and or a performance standpoint? Right. So uh, let's forget about the athlete for a second. The only real metric that we have to monitor dietary change is the scale, which is a pathetic way to monitor dietary change, where you're monitoring weight. Um, It really isn't nearly as responsive as anything else. The single best monitor we have is your blood sugar, because it is immediately reactive. So I use CGMs in a lot of my patients, both my diabetics and my non-diabetic, my obese patients, as a, a disincentive, but also as an incentive to eat the right food. Because as soon as you start to look at or eat anything with carbohydrate, be it an apple, be it a donut, be it um, a bag of chips, you will see your CGM spike up. And if you've got real-time monitoring, you've got real-time feedback that you can use continuously. And, and in athletes, we do exactly the same thing. I've got a group of type 1 diabetic athletes that we monitored for quite a while. They were triathletes in France, and um, they have something called a freestyle libre, and we monitored their blood sugars, and we were playing around with their insulin dosing. Um, and that real-time sugar monitoring helps you both from a dietary perspective from a performance predictive perspective with athletes, but for obese and diabetic patients, it is something that they can use to incentivize their ketogenic diet. When you feel like you want to screw up, or when you feel like that little snack, or you're not sure about, well, what's a grape or an apple going to do? It's natural sugar, which we know is bogus. That gives them immediate feedback. When they eat a huge big steak, um, like I see Sean do on, on Instagram all the time, and your blood sugar doesn't move, even though you've eaten you know, two pounds steak or trying to, 
um, that gives you positive reinforcement that you're doing the right thing. So it, it is feedback that we need. And when you're on a diet, there really is no feedback, whether it's a ketogenic diet or anything else, there's no immediate feedback. And I think, you know what, you know what's amazing to me, if I can just segue across here, is that diabetes is one of the commonest diseases in this country. And one of the best ways to treat diabetes, to actually cure or put it into remission, is on a low-carbohydrate diet. The best way to monitor it is with a CGM. And yet it's almost impossible for me as a doctor to be able to get my diabetics that device through the insurance company. Or if they buy it out of, uh, you know, uh, if they want to buy it themselves, we're talking about $1,100, $1,200 for three months. It is ludicrous that one of the most crippling diseases in this country is so hamstrung by the healthcare system that can't pay for it. So that's just my little soapbox. But CGMs are invaluable in a practice such as mine where we're treating obesity, diabetes, and then for athletes to see how their bodies respond a bit better. And I bet you if you were one, Zach, you would perhaps alter some of your training protocols just based on what you see on those numbers. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because I think some people think of like food choice as a, as a journey of like, let's do an elimination diet and bring things back and see how we respond to them. But something like that would be so immediate, you would know pretty right away, like right away, like, oh, I ate this and I got a positive response. I ate this and I didn't. And you have that immediate feedback and you can adjust things at just such a more rapid pace. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Let me can I can, let me just inject interject a point in here. I, I'm just I'm just curious, uh, Robert, what your thoughts are on you know because the the standard metric by which uh, we we assess you know diabetic you know disease and whether it's getting better or worse is hemoglobin A1C, fasting blood glucose, sometimes an oral glucose tolerance test. How does that compare in your mind to having a CGM as far as useful, usefulness of tools? Do you see flaws in the other ones relative to CGMs? Well, there are significant flaws in all of them. First of all, A1, hemoglobin A1C is actually, in reality, the first marker in the human body or the most easily measured marker in the human body of damage by sugar. Because hemoglobin A1C is where sugar attaches to protein on a hemoglobin molecule and damages that hemoglobin molecule. And there's a percentage which is normal. And then as that, the number of uh, hemoglobin molecules, the percentage of hemoglobin molecules where that sugar is permanently attached and disruptive gets to a certain point, we doctors in Western medicine, I don't include myself in this, use A1C as a point of treatment. And because 
all we have, at least in the American Diabetes Association, are drugs to give to patients. So if somebody's A1C is 6.4, they're pre-diabetic. But if they're 6.5 or 6.6, they're diabetic because now we can give them medication. That is just ludicrous. A normal A1C is about 5.1. So if 6.5 is your uh, treatment dose, what's happening in your body? If A1C is reflective to damage to your body, what's happening between 5.1 and 6.5? A massive amount of damage is happening. And it's, the damage is based on the effects of sugar and, and of insulin movement. So we, first of all, we look at A1C and the goal treatment, whether you're a type one diabetic, a type two, or just a fat guy or an athlete, is an A1C between 4.9 and 5.1 as being normal. And you do that by radically reducing your overall carbohydrate consumption. The way the A1C works versus the CGM, if you're driving down the road and you, and you overtake someone and you speed and a cop catches you, that's the equivalent of a spike in your blood glucose, which is measured on a CGM. But if you sped the entire distance over 300 miles that, and, and you average out your speed, that is A1C. So it doesn't really reflect um, immediate or spikes in your blood sugar. It's the average elevation of your blood sugar um, that is measured on A1C. But we use A1C as a treatment module. I use it as a way to, to help patients to understand really is. And um, I don't really use it as a treatment paradigm for medication. I use it as a treatment paradigm for becoming more aggressive about carbohydrate abstinence. Does, does that make some sense to you? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm pretty well versed in, 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 you know, what A1C does. You know, some of the concerns people talk about are, you know, that it's been, it's been noted to be more dynamic than we thought it was. You know, most people think it's a 90-day marker when in reality, uh, you know, we've seen some people, I think some of the Verta Health people have, have shown that, that, that uh, hemoglobin A1C may vary, um, you know, in a matter of a couple of weeks. And then we're also seeing some concern about half-life of red blood cells. Oftenly, often the, the red, particularly in diabetics, we see that the red blood cells don't last as long and therefore the A1Cs are artificially low. And conversely, perhaps maybe they live longer. So there's some concerns about that. And some people prefer uh, or you are sort of verified with something called fructosamine, which, you know, also kind of represents supposedly a three week approximately estimate of blood glucose. But I wanted to ask you about um, the relevance of spiking your blood glucose, because, you know, we talk about, um, you know, glucose being a problem. And then there's some people that will say, well, it's glu glucose stability is what we want. We want to see a nice flat line on that CGM and not these big, huge excursions. And so sometimes we see those excursions and you point out the fact that, you know, obviously food, you know, if I, if I, if I ever take a big slug of sugar, my, or, or, you know, you know, eat a piece of bread or something like that, likely my blood glucose would shoot up, you know, 150, 160, 200, who knows, maybe even 250 because I never eat the stuff. But we also see some excursions on those athletes. You know, we might, you know, like I said, if, if Zach's getting ready to run a sprint, maybe his blood glucose will spike to, I don't know, 150, maybe not. So how do we, how do we differentiate the spikes on an athlete versus the spikes on a, um, you know, on a, on a, you know, just a regular person eating the wrong food? Is there something that's mitigating that? Is, is there more to it than just the blue blood glucose as well? Are there things that, that, that sort of, turn that blood glucose into advanced glycation end products, which are the, you know, those are the actual damaging molecules. You talked about the, the, the protein being bound and, the, and those glycation end products will bind to 
nucleic acids and you know in the fat and everything they'll oxidize or glyc or rather glycate everything so something has to have there has to be another component there i believe um and then the other thing is you know you know we talk about cgms what is because a lot of people feel that seed oils are problematic and i don't know what eating you know taking a slug of canola oil would do to my to do to a cgm and how do we if you believe that there's a role for seed oils in this in this discussion how do how do we how do we figure that one out right so so the first answer is this the to whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic is really what you're asking me the human body is primarily designed to use sugar that is made internally when you make sugar from the liver it is in response to a hormonal need that is not insulin based usually a catecholamine so if you get a fright, if you walk around the corner and you see a saber-toothed tiger standing there, you want a burst of sugar to be able to run away. When Zach is going for a sprint or going for a swim, he wants that burst of sugar. Those are physiologically necessary bursts. And the highest I've been able to get mine in the last three months is to 222 when I was swimming. And, uh, and that is a completely healthy, completely normal, completely physiologic response. On the other hand, if I eat a bag of Cheetos, and my blood sugar spikes to 180 to 200, that is a very unhealthy sugar response because that is a consumable sugar that my body is incapable of dealing with effectively. Does that, does that make sense? So it's not a physiologic response. And I think you, a sensitive body can push a ton of sugar into the bloodstream when it's needed. But that is where your body is taking sugar from the liver and using it in the muscles or in the brain. On the converse, if you put the sugar or the starch in your mouth, your body now has to store that sugar and in converting it to fat and being able to have a lot of fluid that goes in with it, that's where damaging harm comes, uh, comes from. So the, the physiologic need or the physiologic spike is a very valuable spike. The consumed spike is a very harmful deleterious spike either as a one-time event or, like most of these people, people on a sad diet, on the standard American diet, it's spiking all the time. It's a consistently elevated blood sugar that causes a lot of damage. Yeah, so I think that's, a, and I'm just going to try to summarize. So you're saying that, you know, we have the capacity for our liver, primarily our liver, to, 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 should, to put, you know, glucose in our bloodstream in a physiological time of need, and we have cells that are that are ready to take that up appropriately, i.e., muscle muscle cells and other things, to allow us to do that performance. Versus, we dump sugar into our system exogenously, the blood sugar spikes and it has nowhere to go, and therefore our body sticks it in primarily into fat. Is that is that kind of the the gist? That's of exactly I'm right. Yeah. So one is harmful, one is useful, but the one is produced within the body, the other one is consumed by the mouth. And that's the difference. And, and, you know, so, I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, and this is something that I, that I talk about quite a bit. I, I think, you know, glucose is, as you pointed out, we, we use glucose all the time that we're always burning a mixture of fuel. It's free fatty acids, it's glucose, it's ketones. It's always sort of the milieu and, and the rate ratios sort of change depending on whether you're fat adapted, depending on what kind of activity uh, you're engaged in. But I mean, you know, we still have a need for glucose and probably the most effective and efficient way to get our glucose levels where they are is to manufacture it ourselves through, you know, gluconeogenesis. Now there are critics of gluconeogenesis say it's very inefficient. It's taxing on the system. It may lead to problems with cortisol. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? It's quite the opposite. In fact, the gluconeogenesis is a primary responder to cortisol when it's done in a healthy way. When you're insulin high and insulin insensitive, 
uh, that's a whole different story. But in, in an insulin-sensitive fat-adapted athlete, cortisol is the primary trigger of uh, cortisol and adrenaline are the primary triggers of that gluconeogenic release. Remember, it's not gluconeogenesis is the manufacturer of the sugar. Um, and the liver is continuously manufacturing sugar and storing it as glycogen. So I don't think that, the, in fact, I know that the rates of gluconeogenesis in, in an in a, uh, insulin-sensitive person are not, they don't go up and down, they don't fluctuate. What fluctuates very rapidly is the liver's release of sugar into the bloodstream and then perhaps even the subsequent take-up by the liver of the excess sugar, because if you take a guy like Zach and you measure him with the CGM, you'll see a spike of sugar when he's doing something and a very rapid return to normal. That's not just his muscles and his brain using it. He's shunting that, that sugar into his bloodstream from his liver for his muscles and his brain to use. And because he's insulin sensitive, his muscles and brain don't use when he stops exercising or whatever it may be, the liver takes back up. So the liver is integral both to the production and the absorption of sugar uh, under gluconeogenic circumstances. And I cannot think of a single circumstance where gluconeogenesis is dangerous or harmful in an insulin-sensitive person. Talk about, uh, because one of the concerns, again, back to this sort of, uh, or sort of uh, glucose or carbohydrates for performance, a lot of people will point to not liver glycogen, but muscle glycogen and, and saying that, you know, having glycogen uh, muscles that are completely or as topped off as much as they can with glycogen is a performance advantage. How does that work in a insulin sensitive fat adapted athlete that is on a carb restricted diet? Right. There is, there is not one or the other fuel that gets used. Muscles, when you are fat adapted, and I'm talking about 90 plus days out of being on a highly ketogenic diet. In other words, your muscles are adapted to that. And guys like John O'Proudfoot, I know Tim Noakes has worked pretty well. They've shown this fairly, uh, fairly decently after about 90 days. The muscle primarily use beta-hydroxybutyrate fat as your primary fuel source, but it will still use a significant amount of sugar, particularly for high uh, via so it will always do that. One of the big differences that they see in fat-adapted versus sugar-adapted athletes is the percentage of utilization is different. And Volek is doing some great work on this as well, where you will use up a massive amount of fat. Uh, you'll use up some sugar. But the other critical thing that you see in people that have gone beyond burnout, where you've trained beyond exhaustion, is that in the fat-adapted athlete, there will always be a small amount of, uh, of glycogen or sugar left behind in the muscle, no matter how exhausted that muscle is. And the, the thought process is that helps with recovery. You also don't have the lactic acid and all the uh, um, acidic byproducts of, gluc of, of uh, glycolysis building up in those muscles when you're on beta-hydroxybutyrate. So you're, it's not just the act of using the muscles during the athletic performance, it's the recovery and also the swelling when you don't have a huge amount of glucose, but you've got a little bit stored as glycogen, glycogen is water-free. Glucose, every molecule of glucose has a molecule of water. So those muscle cells, those myocytes, are swelling up as well with that sugar in the unadapted athlete. The adapted athlete is using it as it gets produced. So you don't have that buildup of extra fluid, especially acidic fluid. So there are a number of advantages and very few disadvantages to being fat adapted in the muscles, but it's not all or none. Yeah, I found it in my own personal experience, and I don't know if you know, I, I've, I've recently won a world championship on the Concept 2 indoor rowing machine. I, I've set several world records, and I know when I was training 
and as I still do, training in these very highly glycolytic, you know, 500 meter type races, which are, you know, between a minute, minute 20 of all out effort, which is in the past was extremely painful, particularly in my legs with massive amounts of lactate and, and you know, hydrogen ions, which, which, you know, when they dissociate, I found that to be significantly lessened. And therefore I was to train at the same level of intensity without as much discomfort and pain that, that I, that I felt. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Right. I, I would agree with that. And, you know, the other part also is your muscles swell tremendously when you're doing that type of work um, under the conditions of, of sugar burning. When you're, when you're burning fat as your primary fuel source, even though it's sugar in the background, your muscles don't swell up that much. Your need for volume, your need for fluid is far, far less. Zach, I don't know if you've run on sugar as well as run on fat, but I don't know what your fluid consumption is over a long, long distance run. But my prediction would be that your sugar, your fluid consumption, your need for water is far less on a ketogenic or a fat adapted diet than it is on a glucose adapted diet. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And sometimes it's kind of hard to pin down because the environment can be such, such drastically different. You know, I did like a hundred mile race last fall where when we started it was 14 degrees Fahrenheit and, you know, I've done races where it gets up into the hundred degrees Fahrenheit too. So I'm sure that plays a pretty big role in just fluid intake and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I was high carb for, you know, all my high school and collegiate running for more traditional distances. And then the first like year and a half or so that I was doing ultra marathons, but, you know, unfortunately I didn't really calculate like fluid intake to the level that I could really make a clean comparison there. But we did have um, a guy on the show a while back in Charles Washington, who said, he noticed a pretty big difference where he went from uh, needing to be drinking before, during, and after long sessions. Now he'll go and he'll do a marathon on the weekend and he won't drink anything before or during it. So for him, it was a clear, a pretty clear uh, reduction in fluid intake need. Right. I think, I think we are so indoctrinated, uh, especially as athletes in warmer climates, to drink, 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 which is a function of running on sugar where every molecule of sugar needs a molecule of water that we overhydrate tremendously and part of the problem especially with endurance athletes when you burn up all that sugar the water that came along with the sugar is left over and the sugar's gone the energy's gone but now you're left with this huge amount of water that dilutes all the electrolytes in your bloodstream and you know tim wrote a great book about this called waterlogged and the whole science of hydration has changed dramatically in the ketogenic era. And we would be very remiss if we didn't talk about probably the most essential thing that any athlete can take in. Far more important, I believe, than glucose is sodium, is salt. And um, you cannot take, take in enough salt. Um, the human body has a tremendous capacity to handle excess salt, but it is it breaks down very readily when there's a salt deficiency. And the way the human body handles a salt deficiency is it starts to use other um, protons, other electrolytes as substitutes. So when everyone says, oh, my magnesium levels are low, oh, my calcium levels are low, my potassium levels are low, that's not necessarily true. That's a secondary phenomenon. The primary phenomenon is lack of salt. And I think over the last 50 years or so, because of the the so-called risk of hypertension, which is absolutely not true, we've become uh, salt afraid. And consuming a huge amount of salt is critically important, especially on a ketogenic diet. 
Uh, remember, the urine system is not there to pee out water. It's there to pee out uh, sol uh, soluble waste products. So if you look at any animal, the urine is highly concentrated, and it's the salt that retains that excess fluid. It's only in the modern era in humans that we pee out this very dilute light urine and, and pee out tons of water because that's how we get rid of the excess water that came when we used up the sugar. When you're on a ketogenic diet, you don't need a huge amount of fluid. You need a lot of salt, but that salt will retain that fluid and only get rid of the little bit of excess. So athletes should not be afraid of the fact that the urine is concentrated and that they're not peeing a huge amount. Obviously, they should be peeing. You don't want to be dehydrated to the point that, you, that you're not peeing at all, but you also don't want to be so overhydrated that you're peeing basically pure water. And that is something that we really ha are just beginning to explore now. And there's a huge amount to be learned from, especially carnivorous animals. Uh, I run a lot with my dog and, and watch what his fluid intake is and how seldom he actually drinks fluid, even though we've gone for a pretty decent hot Florida run. Um, and, and I think you can learn a lot from a ketogenic animal, but our, our understanding of, of salt and fluid management is still in, very much in its infancy. We're so focused on energy, we're not focused on hydration and salt. Yeah, you know, I, that, I, you, you reminded me of something I was kind of noticing as well. Like I'll watch our dog and how little she actually drinks. And, uh, yeah, and, and when, when she does go to the bathroom, yeah, it's not like this like, long effort. It's, you know, barely, barely pees anything out basically. And it's almost always concentrated. So that is interesting that like, you know, as humans, we've decided to just focus on more as, is better and not necessarily to our, to our benefit. But, uh, I think, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to think of a, a reason why that would be other than, you know, doing nothing is free and taking something in costs money. And, <laughs> and that's where you sometimes see where the, where the end products end up is when you follow the dollar with that stuff. But, uh, um, you know, the other thing you said that was interesting that I thought, um, you know, one of the reasons why I, event, I originally switched to a high fat, low carb diet was, well, there was a few things like one was my sleep quality was, was rapidly degrading. Um, the other, the second reason was my energy levels were just so roller coaster -y, not necessarily during workouts, but during just normal life. And the third reason was when I started, uh, doing ultra marathons more exclusively, I was starting to notice at the end of big training sessions after races, just a lot more swelling in my legs, water retention in my legs and things like that. And when you were mentioning like this kind of roller coaster of carbohydrate and water retention, and then the carbohydrate getting eaten up and the water being kind of left in the aftermath, it made perfect sense. Because when you think of like the amount of energy I was putting out training as much as I was on a high carbohydrate diet, you know, there was a lot of carbohydrate turnover there. So it would just maybe set me up for that kind of fluid retention? Am I kind of on the right track with that? You're, you're exactly right. And not only the fluid is being retained in your cells, but it's also in an acidic environment. Because when you're burning that sugar that leaves the fluid as a residual, your, uh, the acidity of that fluid, the lactic acid, the lactate that gets, uh, that's part of the anaerobic, especially burning of that. And even if you're an aerobic athlete, you still got some anaerobic production. That acidity is a, is a huge problem for uh, muscle repair and muscle function. So it's not only the, the excess fluid that swells the cells, uh, it's also the, uh, um, uh, the acidity. One other thing that most athletes aren't aware of, you know, we're, we're obsessed with our muscles and we're obsessed with our energy. 
what else what else that is critical to endurance athletes um, changes dramatically on a carbohydrate diet for the worst and is incredibly effective on a on a uh, a fat diet and that is the delivery system of energy to your tissues the delivery system of energy to your tissues is your blood vascular system so when you are on a high carbohydrate diet and you've got excess sugar in your bloodstream that sugar very relatively i'm going to give you a little science lesson this is basically my phd the sugar very rapidly crosses into what's called the endothelial cells or the cells that line blood vessels and the sugar crosses into those endothelial cells without insulin it doesn't require insulin to do that so anytime your blood sugar goes up just a few points you step back on a sugar drink during your run that sugar enters the endothelial cell but remember what i said every sugar molecule carries with it a molecular water now your endothelial cells especially an athlete should look like fried eggs they should be completely flat pushed up against the wall of the of the blood vessel leaving the lumen or the inside of the blood vessel very wide for blood flow the diameter the mathematics of the diameter of a blood vessel is r to the power 4 so a tiny reduction in the diameter or the radius of a blood vessel makes a massive change to the volume and the flow rate so when the sugar enters those endothelial cells the endothelial cells swell up and when those cells swell up think of them being starting out as a fried egg and turning into what now looks like a boiled egg and what those endothelial cells do is they compress the lumen itself so you get a narrowing of the flow in that vessel first of all there's pressure backwards which causes hypertension which happens in a lot of athletes especially if they start getting uh tired at the end of runs with they're not that fit so their blood pressures go up and that obviously affects the heart the brain number of other things but there because that lumen is narrower blood flow of oxygen and of nutrients to the to the muscles to the smaller capillaries to the smaller delivery areas where that energy and that oxygen is needed is significantly reduced when the endothelial cells are are swollen and that creates earlier fatigue when you don't have that swelling now you've got a much wider lumen and you've got this huge amount of oxygen and energy that can be delivered to the end points to the end organs which are your muscles and your brain cells so not only is it is the performance reduction happening at a muscular level at a myocyte or a muscle cell level it's happening in the highways that are delivering um the energy and the oxygen to those muscles where you, where the roads are blocked and you can't get that volume down there does, does that make sense yeah mhm yeah so, it's so you know, for people to understand but it's so important uh this happens it's the, the negative effects of sugar happens at so many different levels um and then the final thing that actually happens and this is what i call the dead runner society and i know it's a horrible horrible statement but the reason i'm i've coined that phrase and i'm using it is because i am i get so upset when i get all these reports of prime athletes dropping dead while they're training for a marathon in their 40s and 50s what happens when those endothelial cells swell up because they swollen and turn from fried eggs to to boiled eggs that they leave little gaps between the cells now the normal surface of an endothelial cell is very smooth nothing sticks to it but when you leave these little gaps it's like ripping the plaster off a brick wall now you've got the underlying rough brick and what happens is little blood clots form at those levels platelets get in there 
and then a clot forms. And the clot not only blocks the blood vessel, again, further reducing delivery of oxygen to the, to the downstream uh, uh, muscles and organs, but more importantly, that clot is inflamed. It is very fragile, friable. And if that clot happens in one of your big vessels in the lungs or vessels in the heart or vessels in the brain, that clot breaks off, travels downstream, and you have that heart attack, that stroke that kills so many athletes. You can't understand, why is this person in the prime of their life, they're training, they're super fit, why did they drop dead of a heart attack while they were training? That's why. And that is a measurable uh, uh, event that happens in carbohydrate-loaded athletes. And we see it time and time and time again. And it's such an avoidable tragedy. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.